Unfortunately, the average American is not doing well at all in terms of diet quality. Uh, there have been various scores uh, to assess diet quality, and they usually come in at about 50 out of 100. Only about 5% of Americans uh, meet the uh, U.S. dietary guidelines. A poor diet quality certainly has many adverse effects on many diseases, cardiovascular disease, uh, type 2 diabetes. We see if we shifted to a healthy dietary pattern, we could prevent about 20, 25%, maybe 30% of premature deaths. But it's not just about living or dying, it's about quality of life. A healthy diet isn't gonna solve everything. It's really important that we include physical activity, not smoking, avoiding alcohol. And we do see if we do all of those things right, we can add about 10 years of healthy life expectancy, not just living longer and being in a nursing home, but 10 years of, of healthy living. Today's episode is with Professor Walter Willett. Dr. Willett is a physician and epidemiologist and professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He served as chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard for 25 years. Much of his work has been on the development of methods using both questionnaires and biochemical approaches to study the effects of diet on the occurrence of major diseases. He applied these methods starting back in 1980 in the Nurses' Health Studies 1 and 2 and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study. Together, these cohorts, which include nearly 300,000 men and women with repeated dietary assessments, are providing the most detailed information on the long-term health consequences of food choices. Dr. Willett has published over 2,000 research papers primarily on lifestyle risk factors for heart disease and cancer, and has written the textbook Nutritional Epidemiology, published by Oxford University Press. He also has four books for the general public, including Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy, a book that I recommend everyone reads. It doesn't stop there. Dr. Willett is the most cited nutrition scientist internationally. He's a member of the National Academy of Medicine, and the recipient of many national and international awards for his research. To say that we're in good hands here is an understatement. This is really a must listen for anyone who wants to make sense of nutrition. Before we get into the episode, a gentle reminder to please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is greatly appreciated and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Professor Walter Willett. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. 
It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. It's a real pleasure to uh, be sitting down with you in person. something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I'm glad it's in person. It's it's not remote. I think it's without exaggeration. I can say that I certainly, I wouldn't have done my master's in nutrition science. I probably wouldn't have started this show and we probably wouldn't be sitting here uh, had it not been for you know any number of the, the 2000 plus papers that you've published. So I just want to kind of start from the outset by saying thank you for all of the work that you've done and your contribution to this field of science. Well, uh, you're welcome. And sorry I had to read all those papers, but <laughs> I hope yeah. uh, that you found them useful. Yeah, I'm sure I haven't got through all 2,000, but, <laughs> but there's probably 100 or so that I have read that have um, been very illuminating. So um, thank you for that. I want to start here quite, quite broad, and then we can narrow the conversation in and learn about some of your research and how you've come to the sort of recommendations that you would give someone today mm-hmm. with regards to nutrition and improving their health span. Let's say you're out, f- out for dinner and there's a, a young chap next to you in, in his 30s and he says, Dr. Willett, you're the most cited nutrition scientist in the world. Help me out. I go online, there's one person saying to eat like this and the next person seems to be saying the opposite. What food should I be eating or what principles should I be thinking about if I want to remain in good health into my 60s, 70s and hopefully beyond? Well, first of all, be careful about going online because <laughs> you can find everything there. It's, uh, and in fact, it's very hard for someone not deeply in the, sci- in the science of nutrition to sort through all the misinformation uh, that's out there in, in the general media. But actually, it's not too complicated. Most people are going to get most of their calories from carbohydrate. And so it's really important that those be healthy forms of carbohydrate, basically whole grains. 
Uh, second, most of us will get quite a bit of our diet uh, calories from fats. And so it's really important that they be mainly healthy fats like olive oil, canola oil, uh, soybean oil. Of course, plenty of fruits and vegetables and a wide variety is important. As for protein sources, emphasizing uh, plant protein sources like nuts, legumes, soy products, uh, beans uh, being, of course, uh, uh, counted as legumes. Keeping red meat quite low if you want to have it at all, about one serving a week perhaps. Or if you like a big 12-ounce steak, maybe have it a few times a year or once a month, uh, but not uh, large amounts of red meat for sure. Uh, uh, again, a uh, modest amount of poultry would be okay. Fish a couple times a week is actually a pretty good idea because they are a major source of omega-3 fatty acids, which are essential. I grew up in the Midwest, and we were told that you had to have three or four servings of dairy a day. We find that that's certainly not necessary. Dairy products are not essential, but if you'd like to have them, about one serving a day is probably a good target to aim for, preferably uh, having it as uh, uh, yogurt or some uh, cheese that you really enjoy, but not large amounts of dairy. Right. And, of course, keeping sweets and especially sugar-sweetened beverages on the low side. Yeah, which can be a bit of a challenge, highly seductive, some of those foods. <laughs> okay, so what I'm hearing from you is that it's the quality of those macronutrients that really matters when we're thinking about fat or we're thinking about carbohydrates or we're thinking about protein. Those are just umbrella terms. Absolutely. In fact, it really is hardly useful to say fat is good or bad or neutral or uh, carbohydrate is good or bad or neutral. It's really the quality, the form of those uh, macronutrients. Yeah, I've got, I'll put on screen for those watching on YouTube, but that that image of yours I thought was a really nice way of describing some of what you've just described. Yes, well, thank you. And this does really relate to a principle in nutrition that applies to most foods that contain calories or to macronutrients. And if we're really going to discuss whether something is good or bad or neutral, uh, it's all about comparison. Uh, what is the, what's the alternative? Yeah. Uh, and that can make the huge, uh, huge difference. Yeah. I want to put a pin in substitution analyses and, and make sure right. we try and get there. So that way of eating that you kind of just described, which is, is a theme of eating, it's not really defined by a particular label. You know, it's not a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet or a pescatarian diet. It seems like you can achieve that with a number of different sort of dietary patterns. Um, but the commonality is that there is an emphasis on unsaturated fats, oversaturated, particularly these plant and marine sources. There's an emphasis on unrefined carbohydrates, particularly whole grains. Mm -hmm. And then there's an emphasis on including or emphasizing more so this plant protein and de-emphasizing some of the red meat. Dairy can be included, but um, probably should be careful, I guess, about the dose and how much of that we're, we're having. How is the average adult in this country faring when it comes to kind of meeting those recommendations? Yes, uh, that's a very good description. If there is a label, it would be probably flexitarian, which <laughs> really yeah. almost is. It's a, there's a lot of flexibility. Well, that would be a lot less divisive, it, wouldn't right? it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the average American is not doing well at all in terms of diet quality. Uh, there have been various scores uh, to assess diet quality, and they usually come in at about 50 out of 100. Uh, the way in the classes I teach, that wouldn't be passing or close to it. 
or uh, another way of been looking at, that has been looked at is how what percent of Americans are meeting all of the official dietary guidelines, which are which is a low bar, and but even but even with that low bar, only about five percent of Americans uh, meet the uh, U.S. dietary guidelines. What do you think the effect of that is on health? So if we think about the today's chronic disease burden, and I might get you to expand on maybe how that's changed over the last 50 or 70 years, but how? what's the magnitude of effect that a sort of suboptimal diet would be having mm-hmm. on the diseases mm-hmm. that we see relative to, say, mm-hmm. living a sedentary lifestyle or mm-hmm. smoking or drinking mm-hmm. a lot of alcohol? Well, this a poor diet quality certainly has many adverse effects on many diseases, cardiovascular disease, uh, type 2 diabetes. Now we're seeing neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, Very broadly, we see if we shifted to a healthy dietary pattern, we could prevent about 20, 25%, maybe 30% of premature deaths. But it's not just about living or dying. It's about quality of life as well. Uh, And we do, for example, having uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, we can treat it and we can help people, but it's still a major burden on the quality of life. Or uh, premature cognitive decline is something that's clearly devastating, and a healthy diet can make an important difference. Now, of course, uh, diet, a healthy diet isn't going to solve everything. It's really important that we include physical activity, not smoking, avoiding alcohol. And we do see if we do all of those things right, we can add about 10 years of healthy life expectancy, not just living longer and being in a nursing home, but 10 years of, of healthy living. Yeah. So it's, these, it's are really, these are really important impacts. Do we need more studies? Like, Where do you feel our level of understanding is at? Is it that we need more studies to further understand how nutrition is affecting chronic disease, or do we know enough and it's about finding ways to actually implement that knowledge? Uh, this has certainly shifted over time. That uh, The reason we started our long-term studies was back in the 1970s. I was just getting started in my research career, and I was looking at the dietary recommendations that were being made, like avoid eggs uh, and uh, other recommendations, for example, three servings of dairy a day. And I started looking at what evidence there was to support those recommendations, and there really was none. It was it was guesswork uh, uh, based on the best available evidence, but that was virtually no evidence. Uh, you would have thought that people, there would be evidence showing that if, if people ate two eggs, they had higher risk of heart attack. Uh, there are more, more than two eggs a, a week, they had higher risk of heart attack, but there weren't any such studies. There were not studies looking at the optimal amount of milk consumption, for example. So I decided that we should really set up some long-term studies so we could track the diets of hundreds of thousands of people and find out what happened to them depending on what they ate. And of course, controlling for lots of other variables like uh, physical activity and smoking that might be correlated with diet. So we did enroll over the next couple of decades about uh, over 250,000 men and women and we've been tracking those uh, wonderful participants and learning about what a healthy diet uh, can look like. And we've learned a lot. 
during that period of time. And we do have a pretty good picture very broadly of what a healthy diet has looked like. And it's not just our study, but lots of other studies have confirmed the same kind of big picture. So I think you're absolutely right that uh, today we should we need to be putting more emphasis on how we help people move to a healthy diet uh, where we have good evidence about what that looks like. Uh, that said, there's still a lot to be learned about, say, just vegetables. They're very different kinds of foods. You know, what does a carrot have in common with a head of cauliflower? Uh, and it's likely that some vegetables are more beneficial than others. It's even possible that some have some harmful effects. In fact, we do see, we do have some examples of that. So we can, I think as time goes on with better data, we can uh, focus and refine our guidance a little bit, like here's a handful of vegetables you want to make sure you eat during the week. A bit more granular. Right, yes. So there's uh, more research to be done. But again, we the biggest issue now is putting into action uh, the knowledge that we've, that we've learned over the last few decades. And in your experience, what do you think the biggest biggest levers are to pull there is it a combination of educating the public directly um, and policy changes well there's no clear simple answer to shifting uh, human behaviors which are complicated enough and of course diet is incredibly complicated compared to smoking or buckling or seat belts or something like that uh, so there's no simple answer uh, it is important that as a base though we do have solid information uh, and uh, awareness uh, making solid information available to the public but that's often not enough and particularly when we have very powerful industries pushing us mm. in the wrong direction. There's uh, the uh, food industry, beverage industry spends billions of dollars a year just in the United States trying to seduce people to eat products that are damaging to their health. And so uh, we're up against that. And that's why we need to have policies that can also make healthy choices easier for people. Over your career, so since the 1970s, you sort of mentioned before what the current diet is like in the United States, mm -hmm. but have we seen any improvement or is it a deteriorate? As we've learnt more, so I'm trying to picture this graph, our knowledge is getting greater, but at the same time, are we seeing a deterioration in diet? We've seen some major changes in diet since we started our research back in the 1970s. Uh, and some of those changes were in a good direction, but other changes were in a bad direction. And so on balance, it's probably pretty even. We're eating uh, a bad diet now. We were eating a bad diet then, but it's different. Back in the 1970s, actually, that was peak red meat consumption. Uh, and we've cut consumption by about 40% uh, since that time. It was also uh, higher in, uh, somewhat higher in, in dairy consumption, although mainly what we've done is reduce milk and increase cheese mm. in the diet. So total dairy hasn't changed yeah. a lot. Uh, but even though we've reduced saturated fat by several mechanisms, uh, we've uh, increased the amounts of unhealthy carbohydrates and uh, sugar in the diet during that time although there's been a recent small decline in sugar consumption. So it's an interesting pattern. Uh, the fats have improved, the carbohydrates have gotten worse. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big in, picture description. Unless you get into that data, like I've seen people online create the argument that, well, look, red meat consumption's gone down, but health hasn't improved, but mm -hmm. that's not appreciating, back to what you said earlier, yeah. 
what are people eating instead of? Right, absolutely. The trouble is that people now are eating uh, uh, definitely carbohydrates that are worse in quality, uh, more refined. Um, and But there's also been a, uh, an incredible force of uh, the food science uh, world to create products that are more seductive, more heavily marketed, uh, flavor optimized for sweetness, optimized for crunchiness, mm. and uh, in increasingly seductive. So we've, it's not just the, the foods themselves, but how they've been uh, marketed, how they've been placed, that's, I think, contributed to the problems that we are seeing today. And the, again, the problems are somewhat different. Heart disease rates had come down by 80% in the United States. Uh, and a lot of that was improvement in, in the quality of fat. Uh, but uh, heart disease rates have come down, diabetes rates have skyrocketed, and of course, obesity has skyrocketed in the meantime. Uh, so th there's uh, opposing trends for different components of the diet, but overall, uh, we still have very unhealthy diets. And so just to be clear for the listeners, uh, refined carbohydrates, we're talking about products that have a lot of white flour in them, cookies, cakes, biscuits, that sort of stuff in packages, or added sugars, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, that sort of stuff. Right, exactly. So when you first started in this field, what was it that got you interested in nutrition science specifically? I've been interested in food for a long time that even from when I was 10 years old, our family was uh, friends to uh, some college students uh, or people studying nutrition at the University of Wisconsin where we lived at that time. And they sort of got me interested in nutrition, but also our family's been an agriculture family for generations. And so I was always engaged in vegetable growing cl clubs and activities like that uh, when I was growing up. So uh, food was always part of our sort of family tradition. And then uh, I was introduced to the science of food, which mm -hmm. uh, I've managed to weave into what I've done uh, over the years. Uh, in medical school, I've, uh, during my electives, I usually did some nutrition-related projects, including working in, on an indigenous reservation in northern Michigan and uh, doing a little mini survey of health and nutrition there, uh, working in Tanzania, uh, where I taught for three years at the University of Dar es Salaam. So I've managed to do look at uh, diet and nutrition from many different perspectives over the years. Early on, how impactful was the work of Ansel Keys on the, on the way that you kind of thought about yeah. nutrition? Yeah, An Ansel Keys was really a pioneer in this area, and we owe a lot to his work. Uh, he did, as you know well, the Seven Countries Study, where he took uh, about four, took 14 populations of about a thousand men each in seven different countries and for the first time documented over a 10-year period using standardized definitions the incidence and mortality from heart disease which was the number one cause of death in in western countries at that time and so the, really the most important finding was that there was about a tenfold difference in heart disease rates from Northern Europe, especially Finland, down to Southern Europe and uh, lowest in Crete at that time. So just showing that there was this, this huge range of heart disease rates uh, brought on the obvious question of why. 
and he provided some strong clues that something about diet was likely to be important. At that time, he focused on saturated fat, um, and uh, there's been lots of debate about how important saturated fat is since that time. But actually, it is an important part of the picture. It was oversold as being the whole picture. But um, I think we have to give Keyes a lot of credit for what he did. Also, at a time when uh, we didn't really have computers available. And he, uh, even in my early years, the computing facilities we, we had were quite primitive. And we did a lot of things by hand calculation, paper and pencil, even. So uh, one might criticize his studies through today's lens as being small and primitive. But uh, he was pressing the technology that was available at that time. But overall, someone who really uh, opened up an area and made us ask a lot of questions. What do you think about some of the, I guess, the main criticism of Key's work? And from my um, read of this, it's a it's a misunderstanding from the people that are making the criticism. But the, the main one that I hear is, well, it seems that he cherry-picked those countries. And he left out countries like France, where there was higher saturated fat intake and uh, relatively lower incidence of coronary heart disease. And had he included a lot of other countries, his results would have looked different. Yeah, I don't think we can criticize Keys really for cherry picking the countries that, uh, first of all, this was done without an NIH grant. It was basically, uh, he asked colleagues around the world if they'd be willing to do a study of about a thousand men each. And uh, people were asked uh, in other countries whether they'd be willing to do it. And he, uh, it, it was largely sort of uh, countries agreeing to do it uh, uh, on the basis of their own resources and interests. So Keyes didn't really have control exactly over who was going to contribute to this. Uh, and of course, France itself has been interesting, but France is not monolithic either. And uh, one of my friends and colleagues who died a few, a few years ago uh, really studied France in detail, Serge Renault. Uh, you may uh, know of him as someone who did, was behind the French paradox idea. And he showed very clearly, just within France, if you looked at the north of Brittany, Normandy, uh, parts of France. They were really Northern Europeans that had very dairy-centric diets. And then the south of France had more Mediterranean-type diets. They were really on the Mediterranean. And across, though, just within France, there was also a fourfold difference in heart disease rates with the uh, uh, dairy animal-centric diet at the north having about four times higher risk of heart disease compared to the Mediterranean countries. So looking at France was, um, again, uh, not just monolithic. If you just look at the national data, you miss a lot uh, from France. And uh, within France, actually, the seven countries' findings were basically replicated. Right. So that speaks to the importance sometimes of looking within a population and stratifying out people that are living in the same country with a similar lifestyle but have slightly different dietary choices. Right, yes. Uh, looking at countries as a whole is the crudest kind of data. And of course, that's what Ansel Keys did, uh, too. It was re well, he was looking not the whole country, but subsets within a country. But it still is what we call an ecological study. We're looking at whole populations, uh, not so much individual uh, rates uh, and individual diets mm -hmm. uh, uh, there. That Keyes collected dietary data on only a small subset of his population. Which is slightly different to the three cohorts that you've been heavily involved in that we'll, we'll get into. Um, 
just to, to kind of close the loop on Ansel Keys. So his main contributions were he he sh- showed this relationship between saturated fat. Mm-hmm. I think initially it was total fat, but he refined mm-hmm. that to saturated fat mm-hmm. and um, lipids and heart disease, the diet sort of heart hypothesis. And he was able to identify that polyunsaturated fats in particular seem quite he- healthy, heart healthy. Well, it was actually monounsaturated fats. Monounsaturated fats. He was really fats. looking at it at that, okay. that time, yes. Right. So did his work affect policy? I think there's this idea out there that Ansel Keys was anti-fat and you know his work led to dietary guidelines that saw people cut all fat and, and eat refined sugars instead. Is that, is that a fair kind of um, position for someone to take? Yeah, absolutely not. That, that's really a misrepresentation of what Keyes uh, concluded from his studies. That, and uh, as you mentioned, that uh, at the very beginning, he uh, hypothesized that the first broad looks of the data that it might be total fat. But as, as the data came in, he saw that Actually, the lowest heart disease rates were in the country with the highest area with the highest uh, fat intake, the Mediterranean countries. So it was a, about 40 or 42 percent of energy from fat, and so he really uh, uh, set aside the total fat hypothesis and focused on the type of fat. And that's what a good scientist does: that you have maybe an idea, a hypothesis, and then you gather the data and. If uh, the data uh, is uh, contradicts the hypothesis, you uh, change your mind right. and uh, change your conclusions, and that's exactly what Keyes did. And he ended up really not recommending low-fat diets, but recomm- putting the focus on the type of fat in the diet. Right. He missed some important things too. That you know, in retrospect, he missed obesity being an important risk factor for heart disease. And I'm sure someone will look back at our work uh, 30, 40 years from now and say, how could you have missed X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z? That um, it's always easy to see some things in retrospect mm-hmm. that uh, that were not so apparent uh, when you're actually in the middle of the middle of the work. <laughs> yeah, well, none of us, none of us are, are, are perfect, are we? Um, but that, that ability to kind of change your view, it, it reminds me of this saying, facts over emotions. <laughs> right, yes. I think is a, is a good motto for any scientist. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. 
To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so tell me about the, the three large observational studies that you've been involved in, Nurses Health Study, the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, and the Nurses Health Study 2. Um, why was it that you and your colleagues decided to conduct these studies that these were important? Right. Yes, uh, the Nurses Health Study was founded by my colleague, uh, Frank Spicer, in 1976 to look at very specifically at oral contraceptives and how they might relate to risk of breast cancer because uh, oral contraceptives had just become on the market and were being widely used. And we knew in a very broad way that hormones were likely to be related to breast cancer. And so there was a lot of concern whether uh, oral contraceptives were really a time bomb that would really uh, explode the race, rates of breast cancer in the coming years. So uh, that uh, the study was set up then. Uh, I uh, was in Tanzania at that time working and came back in 1977 to do a doctoral degree in, uh, in epidemiology. And I started working on the, on the nurses' health study to look at smoking and heart disease, which is also a hot topic at that time. Interestingly, at that time, it was thought that smoking did not cause heart disease really? in women. It turns out the data show it's the number one cause of heart disease in women. Mm. So that was my thesis. But while working on that, I also, given my interest in nutrition, I realized this would be an incredible population in which we could study the long-term effects of diet. And... Uh, because it was about 121,000 women who were nurses could provide uh, good quality data and also understood that long-term studies were likely to be important. So we did some pilot testing of uh, dietary questionnaires that could be self-administered by this population that was all over the United States in 1980 after a series of pilot tests uh, invited the population to complete a dietary questionnaire. And uh, we've done that and uh, uh, continued that over time. And that's really an important point because many of the large cohort studies only have diet assessed at one point in time. Uh, 
And we've been assessing diet and updating that every four years as we've gone on, along with other factors like physical activity and smoking and uh, or contraceptive use, other medication use. And it's really critical because there have been such large changes, not just in the overall uh, average intake of uh, the U.S. over the uh, over that time, but also individuals change yeah. their diet too. And if we did not keep track of that, we would have missed mm. virtually everything we've been able to find. Do you see that in the data, like between over the over the years, the four year sort of mm. intervals that people are changing their diet quite a bit? Over four years, uh, people changed their diet a fair amount, and I, it was just completely random. It, it would be impossible to have a good study. Uh, the, just the correlation for most of the dietary factors we looked at uh, over four-year intervals is about 0.6. But if we go 10 or 20 years out, the correlation gets down to 0.2 or something like mm-hmm. that, which is pretty low. So it, it really is important right. in a long-term study to uh, keep track and to have repeated dietary assessments. I, just for fun, um, we did an analysis a, a year or so ago looking at um, what we would have seen if we had only had the 1980 dietary data and then followed people for the next 30 years. And uh, during that time, with all our repeated assessments, we found very strong relationships with trans fat and heart disease, very strong inverse relationships with polyunsaturated fat in the diet, a modest positive association with saturated fat. This is all compared to carbohydrate calories. And if we had only had that baseline diet, we would, we would have missed uh, trans fat, saturated fat, picked up just a little bit of a signal about polyunsaturated fat. So it, it's really been essential that we had all that uh, repeated information. So that's a good inside tip for anyone who's reading a an, an epidemiological nutrition paper. If there is only one measurement and it's following these participants for 15, 20, 30 years, how do you kind of feel about that paper and in reviewing it? Are you sort of automatically questioning the results? Well, it's a little bit one-sided. If they found a clear association, uh, then uh, you, would, you wouldn't question it just on the basis of only one measurement because we would be underestimating that relationship if there was a lot of more or less random uh, change in diet over time. Uh, but if they fail to find an association, uh, it could easily be because they didn't have repeated measurements. This variability over time uh, is not exactly equal for every aspect of diet. Uh, for instance, trans fat did go up and down a lot because of changes in manufacturing in addition to personal changes in choices of foods. But uh, I, it's definitely going to be a weak study if, uh, if uh, there's only one baseline assessment and then uh, many years of follow-up. You mentioned the word fun there with that paper. You just kind of slid that in there. I get the feeling there must be, there, there has to have been quite a bit of fun for someone to publish 2,000 <laughs> papers. So that's nice yeah. to hear that from you. What are the, the advantages of these types of studies where you recruit a, a, a large number of people from the population, you're tracking them over time. And as you said, these were nurses. So that was considered to be um, a good population to study because of their sort of willingness to provide health information mm-hmm. and understanding of how important that is mm-hmm. and reliability, I assume. What's the advantages of that style study over a randomized controlled trials? Or what does that allow you to look at that maybe you you can't look at or it's not as easy to look at with a randomized controlled trial? 
yes, there's no perfect study design. If uh, if we had unlimited resources and we could uh, control people totally, uh, which neither of are <laughs> necessarily desirable or, or and uh, completely unrealistic, then we might answer each question we have with a large randomized trial. Uh, that would be many thousands of people go on for many decades. Uh, but that's oh, um, virtually never going to happen. Uh, an advantage of the type of what has been called an observational study that we do is that, uh, first of all, you can look at the long-term effects of dietary factors. <clears throat> and we know that uh, for many aspects of diet and disease, it, the effects are likely to be long-term. Uh, for some cancers, uh, we know that DNA gets damaged and then it may be decades later until people develop the cancer. We know that from the American atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima during World War II. That, uh, when people were young, uh, children or young adults, uh, and were radiated, uh, decades later they got more breast cancer risk. But if the, uh, the study had only gone on for five or ten years, we would have missed most of that. Um, also, uh, we can uh, look at the full, uh, oftentimes a larger range of dietary intake than someone can do in an intervention study. One of the problems in a randomized trial is that often the people who enroll already have healthier diets, and then you uh, make you maybe add a supplement or some other change in their diet. And uh, if they already are getting enough of a nutrient and you add more, it's, you're not going to see something. It's really, it might be the top uh, 20, 30 percent, excuse me, the bottom 20 or 30 percent of the population that has That's low intakes. Point. You really need to, to assess their nutrient status almost at the outset of that study. One, yes, in randomized trials, it's really, it should be uh, standard to assess diet at the baseline and then to be able to look at people, for example, who are low to begin with, or maybe, or for something that might be harmful, people who are already high. At baseline, but most uh, randomized trials don't uh, do that. Uh, and, and the problem is also they're designed statistically to have enough power for the total population. And so if you do have a subset of 20% that really could benefit, you may not have st enough statistical power, enough people in that subgroup to actually look at the benefit of adding more. Ideally, you would screen people before you randomize them to find the people who are low and potentially could benefit from an intervention that was adding a, a beneficial factor to their diet. So you mentioned there's no perfect study. In your kind of recommendations that you sort of started with in this conversation, um, is that a culmination of the findings from observational epidemiology, including your studies, and then also findings in randomized controlled trials? Right, you make an important point that I think recommendations should rarely be based on a single study of any type uh, because it could be some quirk in the data or some flaw in the study design. And that's why in general, in science, we want to see studies replicated. Now, if you're doing big, expensive studies that last decades, that's replication is sometimes not very feasible. But uh, Rarely should we make a, a, a recommendation based on a single study or even a single type of study. So the kind of suggestions I was making at the beginning, that's not based on just one our study or one other study. It's based on what we 
call weight of the evidence. And uh, usually that would be uh, findings from a long-term cohort study like ours. And the, the potential weakness of a cohort study is f fundamentally confounding, that it's possible if we see uh, a benefit of a dietary factor, it could be because those people with that pattern smoke less or maybe something else in the diet. So we, we give a lot of attention to controlling confounding by assessing smoking and statistically controlling for it in a lot of detail. But it's always possible we haven't done it perfectly. So I think where we will usually have the best evidence for recommendations is the combination of large cohort studies that have gone on for many years, and then small studies that are randomized and look at changes in intermediate variables like blood LDL cholesterol or blood pressure uh, or uh, blood glucose level. And so if we have data, for example, with trans fat, we're able to show in small randomized trials of a few dozen people for a few weeks that giving more trans fat compared to non-hydrogenated oils uh, trans fat increased LDL cholesterol and reduced HDL cholesterol. And when you combine that data with long-term studies showing that people who ate more trans fat had higher risk of heart disease, that makes a really strong case, that combination of evidence. Pointing that, in the same direction. Uh, pointing in the same direction, reinforcing right. the conclusion. And providing a, an explanation, right. I guess, for the mechanism that right. might be at play that is leading to that outcome. I want to double-click on the correlation point that you made there and and correlation not causation that's the quote that you know you'll see i see a lot online and it's kind of just thrown out there flippantly from people to disregard all nutritional epidemiology right as if these studies have no place in helping form nutrition recommendations and i, d I found a quote from a 1957 paper this was your Yurashalmi and Hilbo, I may have pronounced that wrong, they were writing about Ansel Keys, and they said, it is well known that the indirect method merely suggests that there is an association between the characteristics studied and mortality rates, this is what you just spoke to, and further, that no matter how plausible such an association may appear, it is not in itself proof of a cause-effect relationship. But quotation and repetition of the suggestive association soon creates the impression that the relationship is truly valid, and ultimately it acquires status as a supporting link in a chain of presumed proof. Is there any truth to that? Uh, well, a little bit. It's sort of half-truth, which can be dangerous. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, correlation is not causation, but a, a correlation actually can be co representing causation. And so you can't disregard uh, correlation or what we call also association uh, just because it isn't uh, uh, by itself final proof. Uh, it's part of the evidence. And again, uh, we will seldom have the perfect kind of evidence like we might want to have. It's just infeasible to do uh, trials of very large numbers for decades to look at causes of cancer and heart disease. Where, like coronary heart disease, it's really a process that develops from childhood onwards. We're building up our plaques in our arteries, and finally after decades, it gets to a point where some the plaque crumbles and we get a heart attack. Uh, so we, we can't, we're unlikely to be able to do randomized trials for many of the questions that we have. Um, and so again, uh, the long-term 
uh, cohort studies combined with randomized studies of mechanisms is probably going to be the best quality information that we can get. And this is not unusual. Most of the important things we assume are causation and we make decisions are not based on randomized trials. And it's sort of the more important the question is, often the harder it is to do right. a randomized trial. Smoking is a good example of that. Smoking's a good example, or do you believe in climate change? Right, of course. Well, have you randomized planets? <laughs> How many do you need? Uh, and uh, economic policies, uh, people are uh, in court, decisions are made in court, not based on randomized trials. We just sit around with no nutrition recommendations right. at all if we're right. waiting for that. So this phraseology infer causality is often used. So that's kind of what you're speaking to. So how do we how do we infer causality? What does that actually mean? Yeah, well, causality means if you make one uh, change in, say, diet, in this case, that it will, uh, the effect will be a change in risk of disease. That would be causation. And that's what we're trying to get at. Um, but again, in nutrition, uh, it's complicated, again, just to look at that basic cause and effect relationship. But also, we have what we call effect modification. And I sort of alluded to that uh, a change in our diet. Uh, will its effect will depend on what you're already eating, for example, or other aspects of the diet as well, which really does make this complicated. Uh, and that's one thing that we can usually look at quite well in the observational kinds of studies. Uh, interestingly, there was one, um, uh, I won't name his name, but uh, the, the last smoking epidemiologist who insisted, ironically, that smoking and lung cancer was only an association. It wasn't uh, wasn't a cause, and he died of lung cancer. Mm. Uh, so you, that's you, ironic. You, you can dive in an association, that's for sure. Right. So something else I, I, that often comes up here, particularly when the smoking example is used to illustrate that you don't necessarily need a randomized controlled trial to influence public health recommendations and sort of infer causality, and I have another quote here that I'm going to read out because I think this summarizes it nicely. It's from Peter Atia, who is an MD. I think he does great work online. Um, but he's he's a little bit critical of mm-hmm. observational epidemiology, mm-hmm. particularly in the nutrition science mm-hmm. um, field. I'm not sure if it's a, a fair statement or not. I'll read it out. The sooner we can all move away from using observational epidemiology like this, and he was referring to a study looking at red meat, as a palette to paint our preconceptions with the better. Yes, observational epidemiology helped determine that cigarette smoking is a cause of lung cancer, for example, contaminated water and cholera, scrotal cancer and chimney sweeps. I can assure you that those studies were not reporting associated relative risk ratios less than two and absolute risk increases of less than two-tenths of one percent. This is something I've seen quite a bit where people will disregard the mm-hmm. findings based on the effect size being mm-hmm. less than two. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've you've come across? Uh, yes, uh, uh, but I think that's the world we live in, that uh, given that most of the diseases that we study, like cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes, are the result of many different factors, many different causal factors coming together. There's no single cause like cholera, uh, and contaminated water, 
uh, the color organism living in, in the water, uh, that most of the things, the big issues, again, are much more complex. And it means that any one factor may contribute uh, a modest part to the total. But when you add up these modest parts, like for heart disease, it's the number one cause of death. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you insist on having a relative risk of two or more, you're just not going to understand the cause, causation and certainly the prevention of the diseases. So the reality is that the realistic uh, relative risk that we would be looking for are often in the range of 1.2 or 1.3. But when you're looking at something that's important, uh, as important as uh, coronary heart disease or common breast cancer, common cancers, a 20% increase would be important, like uh, for um, mammographic screening, for example, that uh, reduces risk by about 20 or 25%, and we devote a lot of energy and resources to that. So we're, uh, and most, almost all the cancer treatments have effects that are 10%, 20%. Those are the winner treatments. So that, um, those kinds of differences are considered very important when we're looking at common, common outcomes. And the, uh, uh, so the real issue is, uh, those are the kinds of issues that we want. Those are the questions that we're looking for. What are the best ways to get at not what at, at knowledge to understanding causation? Uh, and so again, there's no single perfect study, and one will probably almost certainly never do a randomized trial to look at the effect of of red meat on coronary heart disease or uh, or many cancers. So that's why you have to do the create the best design studies that we can and then use multiple kinds of evidence. Yeah, I do think there is a bit of a, an inconsistency in some people in the way that they they take this angle that r relative risk under two are, are not meaningful. If you take that position, you kind of also have to take the position, position that trans fats are not increasing risk of coronary heart disease because I believe most of those studies, including yours, the relative risk for that relationship was under two. Right, right. Yes, and so many important things that uh, we devote lots of resources to uh, 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 try to re reduce risk by uh, 20%, which would like correspond to a relative risk of 1.2 or 1.3. Uh, so that um, we do in general consider those kinds of effects uh, very important. What about someone who says, yes, but those small effects could be explained by residual confound? Mm, yeah. Well, that's why we spend a lot of our time measuring potential confounding variables, and then we adjust for them uh, statistically uh, or sometimes by restriction, another way of getting at that. And that's, in fact, why one of the, it's one of the reasons why our studies are less susceptible to confounding than most observational studies because we restricted the population to health professionals. And so to begin with, their knowledge and their education is pretty similar. There's a little bit of variation. Some of the nurses went to sort of minimal training to get an RN and some went on to get a doctoral degree as well. So we have that information. There's That might be called residual confounding if we didn't take care of that. Or some of them married a uh, low-income uh, laborer and some of them married doctors. So they will have, there's some residual 
potential residual confounding. So we get at that in other ways. We have uh, we have their husband's education. We adjust for that. We can adjust for the uh, income level in the neighborhood where they live, uh, things like that. Uh, we have about 27 different environmental variables we can adjust for. And then you see how much does the relative risk change. If it really bounces around a lot, then you are more concerned about residual confounding. But if you adjust for a lot of those variables and there's very little change, then you have quite a bit of confidence that after having adjusted for all these big things, that there's not some little thing that's uh, going to explain very much. So um, that's something that uh, is at the core of epidemiology, is actually dealing with residual confounding. And we don't claim that we can ever be perfect, but we've gotten a lot better at that than we were a few decades ago. Yeah, it's interesting if we did want to um, only make decisions about anything we do only using randomized trials, we'd be just amazingly ingrained. Yeah. And, and <laughs> uh, if you just think of all the important decisions we make, uh, right. that very few of them can actually be studied with randomized trials. Yeah. And it can be a little bit reductionist, I guess. You're not uh, seeing those health outcomes. And I guess the biggest problem with randomized trials, it's so easy to get the wrong answer. Uh, not that because you didn't go long enough, not a lot, not enough adherence by the participants, uh, that people were already adequately nourished. All those things you can easily get a wrong answer, or misleading answer. It's it's a right answer for the question they ask, uh, but it's a sort of meaningless question. The three cohorts you mentioned earlier that you were you were assessing their diet every four years, right? So that was using a food frequency questionnaire. Yeah. I think this is another um, area that confuses people a little bit. What can you tell us about those tools and and how well or how accurate, reliable they are at actually assessing what someone's eating? Right. The, uh, the, the value of a study is only going to be as good as the methods are to measure dietary intake. And so we spend a lot of time uh, evaluating the validity of our dietary assessment methods and also fine-tuning them over time as we've gone on. Um, I first got interested in the food frequency questionnaire approach uh, when I was a, a medical student and we did a survey on an uh, indigenous population in Michigan, and we found that using a food frequency questionnaire, we could collect a lot of information uh, in a very efficient manner. And so uh, building on that, um, we designed more detailed questionnaires to answer questions that were being asked, like about uh, is fat the, uh, the major risk factor for breast cancer, which was the common belief when we were beginning our work in the late 1970s. And so we've, uh, from the beginning, uh, enrolled subsets of the population and a few hundred participants and collected very detailed dietary information from them, uh, uh, giving them scales to weigh and measure everything they, could, they, could, they ate over one-week periods around the year. And we showed there was quite a good correlation between our simple assessment that we could apply in 100,000 people and this very expensive detailed method that we could only afford to do in a few hundred people. So we were, even at the beginning, seeing that we could get quite good information, mm. not perfect information. If you want perfect information, you'll never learn anything. Right. So it's uh, not necessarily the exact specifics of what everyone was eating, but you're getting a good idea of the 
theme, their dietary pattern? Well, it was more than that. Take red meat, for example. There were some people that reported that they only had red meat occasionally, and other people had red meat every day. And uh, no big surprise when we got very detailed information. That's what we saw. Now, the exact quantity of the red meat at each time, the information was less perfect for sure. But definitely there were important differences between people who have red meat just once a week or less and those that have red meat several uh, every day or more. And that's not too hard for people to report. Uh, so we can study that. Exact, again, not exact uh, down to gram amounts, but uh, very broadly, the high users compared to very light users. And going through food by food, we could. it was really the same thing, that there were some people that were consuming uh, virtually every food com- frequently and other people hardly consuming each of those foods at, at all. Uh, so then we've also gone on and... Uh, continued to do validation studies. We've done three increasingly detailed validation studies, the last about uh, 2010. And uh, there we enrolled about uh, 700 women and 700 men and collected, again, very detailed weight and measured uh, records of what they were eating. And then also a lot of biomarker data using urinary samples and blood samples. And we could show quite good correlations between the... uh, intake and the expected biomarker of, in, of consumption. And then interestingly, we could contr- we could say, let, uh, let's look at the biomarker and consider that the truth and how do each of these other measurements correlate with the truth. And the food frequency questionnaire overall, then we did a lot of analyses, uh, has about the same correlation as a one-week weighed diet record. And the difference in cost is at least a thousandfold. So you, we can do big studies And we can do repeated measurements, which those repeated measurements are really important. I think that may be lost on some people. So in those three cohorts, that's for Nurses Health Study 1, Nurses Health Study 2, and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, there's biochemical analysis. Right. Yes, and subsets of the population that could not begin to afford to do biochemical analysis on several hundred thousand people, but we on subsets of the population. But that allows you to say, okay, we can we can essentially get a very objective idea of of this person's nutrient status or hormones or whatever it may be. And then we can use that to determine, is the information we're getting about their diet likely to be accurate? Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So let's go over the, the major findings that you've, you've uh, unearthed over the years from these cohorts. And I appreciate some of that's going to overlap with what we kind of led with at the start of this conversation. But high level, what are, I guess, the, the most interesting things that you've observed? Probably the most interesting and important from a public health standpoint of what we've done has been the type of fat in the diet being important. And at the beginning of our work, the common belief and the base of the national dietary recommendations and even global recommendations uh, was that all fat is bad. And the dietary recommendations were to eat a lot of carbohydrate and keep fat intake as low as possible. And that was really the, the message from our dietary pyramid that we had at that time. And so 
we've looked at total fat intake in relation to many different outcomes, and we've just not seen any important association with total fat in the diet. Uh, and uh, the total fat versus total carbohydrate just seems to be not important. But the type of fat has turned out to be extremely important. And uh, Ansel Keys did suggest that that might be the case, and, uh, but he did miss some important pieces, including trans fat, that that is the most harmful type of fat in the diet, uh, worse than saturated fat, considerably worse than saturated fat. And we did see that show up quite early in our study, even by 1993. We published in the Lancet that there was an increased risk of heart disease. That's been confirmed in other cohort studies and in over a dozen controlled randomized feeding studies, trans fat was harmful. So, Is that because of its effect on lipids or is there multiple kind of mechanisms? Uh, trans fat seems to definitely has adverse effects on blood lipids and uniquely adverse effects on blood lipids. It's the only type of fat that raises LDL and reduces HDL in, in the blood, but it also increases inflammatory factors, and it looks like it probably increases insulin resistance as well. And inflammation and insulin resistance are very intertwined, so it's, it's more than just an effect on so blood lipids. Worst. So that's the worst of the fats. And then the unsaturated fats actually being beneficial compared to carbohydrate intake uh, with uh, polyunsaturated fat being uh, strongly uh, beneficial. And again, we've known from the time of Ansel Keys that polyunsaturated fat re reduces LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol in the diet. But it's clear now that it does much more than that too. It also reduces insulin resistance, reduces inflammation as well. So uh, polyunsaturated fat being very beneficial. In fact, I think the, the biggest single reason, and there were multiple reasons for the decline in heart disease in this country, was about doubling of polyunsaturated fat in the diet from the 1960s. Uh, and then monounsaturated fat looked to be sort of neutral or maybe beneficial. And what we've seen with further follow-up that monounsaturated fat compared to uh, carbohydrate is beneficial if it's monounsaturated fat from plant oils, but not from animal sources. And of course, uh, uh, beef fat and dairy fat has a fair amount of monounsaturated fat in it as well. But it, it's probably more than just the uh, type of fat. It's probably the plant oils are coming with a lot of antioxidants and other phytochemicals along with it. But anyway, what we see is that the Type of fat is very important, and uh, fortunately, with on the basis of this evidence, uh, partial hydrogenation has been outlawed now in the United States and many other countries. In fact, by the time we got around to outlawing, it was almost already gone, already that there had been enough information out that even the manufacturers who resisted uh, at first the information, but they, they finally came aboard and took trans fat out of their products. So yes, I think type of fat has had a uh, it's been really interesting biology. It's been interesting, challenging epidemiology, uh, and, but, and also has a very huge public health impact. I think a great summary of some of that is in this graph that you did with Frank Hu, which I'll, I'll put on screen if anyone's watching on, on YouTube. Um, but one point there, so I think we just really underline this for people, is that a healthy diet does not have to be low total fat. Quality yeah. of the fat is really important. And what I heard you say is that these polyunsaturated fats in particular seem to be inherently beneficial. So how do you how do you feel about 
I guess it's 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 still common to see some people advocating for a low fat diet for cardiovascular disease. How do you feel about that? Yeah, right. Uh, I guess opinions change slowly. <laughs> We're humans. It's something hardwired into us that uh, people have a hard time uh, changing their beliefs based on even uh, strong evidence as it emerges. So I, I think the, for a long time, it wasn't just the public, but the prevention world, the medical world, was they were really pushing low-fat, high-carbohydrate diets. Uh, and it took quite a while for them to change. And But they, by this time, I think that's almost universally uh, uh, changed. But there's still lags, people out on the front lines uh, working with patients. Uh, often don't have good access to information. And of course, the internet still confuses people. Um, there's, there's lots of just noise out there about diet that I think slows down um, evidence-based change. Right. Fortunately, it's 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 now quite clear in the cardiovascular prevention guidelines and um, the information that you're speaking to is becoming more and more available to clinicians. So um, it is available for people to find if they want to. If they have the time, right? <laughs> you you mentioned there that the doubling of the polyunsaturated fats has likely contributed to, I believe, the reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality. That and you can look at a curve. You can look at the as the cardiovascular disease mortality has gone down, plant oil consumption has gone up. But yet there are some people who are set on pointing the finger at vegetable oils and seed oils and you know, canola oil, for example, and saying that these are actually harmful, they're inflammatory, they contribute to disease, and that typically is is really directed at, at omega-6 linoleic acid, and I'm sure that's something that you've seen. Why do you think that idea exists? That's a good question. I've been asking <laughs> colleagues, where does this idea come about that seed oils and omega-6 are harmful? And I, I think it, uh, the person really who was pushing that for quite a while was Artemis Simopoulos, uh, whose work you may have come across. But actually, she really didn't do any work. It, I looked, I've read her papers, and there's no evidence, there's no research that she's done on this. It, the, it, the idea, I think, comes from the fact that uh, we eat, uh, our main omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids in the diet are 18 carbons long, and those uh, fatty acids, uh, omega-6 and omega-3, are elongated and desaturated uh, and become inflammatory or anti-inflammatory factors. Uh, and the idea is that they omega-6s uh, compete against the elongation and desaturation of omega-3 fatty acids, and it's uh, believed and there's evidence that omega-3 fatty acids have anti-inflammatory effects. And so uh, there must be competition there, and if omega-3s are good, omega-6s must be bad. I think that's the, the extent of the information, or the, the hypothesis here. But this ignores the fact, uh, several facts, that omega-3 fatty acid levels are elongated to arachidonic acid, and the body really wants that uh, because I, it, it, it's 
been staring me in the face for decades, but the amount of arachidonic acid in the blood as a percent of fatty acids is about 20 times higher than the amount in our diet. So uh, our body really wants to have a lot of arachidonic acid and it's uh, and regulates that very tightly. So these are not unregulated pathways. And arachidonic acid is really important. It's a... Uh, 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 it's a very major part of our central nervous system and involved in uh, uh, in the inflammatory pathways that uh, fight uh, infections, for example. So these are tightly regulated pathways. They're not uh, just allowed to compete directly with each other. But more importantly, uh, that polyunsaturates, omega-6 uh, polyunsaturates have many other functions as well that uh, they uh, downregulate NF-kappa-B, which is an inflammatory pathway, and they also are ligand for PPAR-gamma, which uh, is an insulin sensitizer as well. So it's pretty clear that replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat reduces insulin resistance and, and diabetes risk as well. So I think it, there's a mistake just to look at by the human biochemistry and biology is really complicated, and to look just at one pathway and uh, uh, on this hypothetical reason make dietary recommendations, I think that's where it's coming from. But there are now dozens of studies that show that omega-6 fatty acids are not pro-inflammatory. They're, uh, in, a, in a number of the studies, they're actually anti-inflammatory. Uh, so we need both, omega-6 and omega-3. They're both essential. And uh, if we only had omega-6 polyunsaturates, that wouldn't be a good situation either. We, ne we need both of them. And uh, the exact uh, uh, balance is not totally uh, clear, but uh, we have up, up to about 8% polyunsaturates, omega-6 in our diet. Taiwan is about, when I looked, about the highest, at about 15%. So we've looked, we can't, at some point, almost everything will start to become bad or too much, but we don't see that within our population. Yeah, I think it's become a bit of a scapegoat almost. I've seen some people point to ultra-processed foods and say it's the linoleic acid. That's the one thing that is obesogenic. But you know, even if you look at the research on obesity, and I saw a really interesting paper in Circulation, I'll put this on screen as well, that did a biochemical analysis and actually looked at linoleic acid in serum and in adipose tissue. You've probably seen this. You might even be an author on this paper. <laughs> I'm not sure. But they they saw an inverse relationship. So the higher the linoleic acid adipose tissue levels, the lower total mortality. Yeah, men lower diabetes, lower cardiovascular risk to all. And we've also looked at weight gain too, that there was actually less weight gain with uh, higher linoleic acid intake. But you're right, it's, it's, it's amazing how these myths develop and get propagated on the internet. Okay, so here we're talking about the importance of the type of fat and if you're sort of downshifting on saturated fats, including more polyunsaturated fats, which in, from a food perspective would look like, I guess, less fatty cuts of meat and butter and, and more nuts and seeds and legumes and fatty fish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's really the the right way to look at it is on the, the whole food basis because that that's what we eat and that integrates all the other components that come along with these nutrients. And so, from a mechanistic point of view, is the primary reason that's 
beneficial for the person that's making those changes, the effect on LDL cholesterol, or there are a variety of mechanisms that are at play when you swap saturated fats for polyunsaturated fats. Uh, definitely a variety of mechanisms. The LDL cholesterol in itself would be important, but there are also these uh, uh, insulin sensitizing issues, uh, anti-inflammatory issues, and probably some other mechanisms that are not totally clear to us yet. You published a paper in 2016 with Chen Mu. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. right. And it was on dairy fats. Right. And that was, I found that paper to be particularly interesting. I'm interested in what were the major takeaways of that research and, and how your views have specifically maybe evolved um, when it comes to this food group, dairy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, dairy's, I think, the most interesting food group because. Uh, it's very complicated, and it's not like sugar-sweetened beverages where just everything is bad, no good. But dairy clearly has a lot of uh, positive benefits, a lot of beneficial essential nutrients in it, but also uh, some potential harmful effects as well, consumed in high amounts, especially all, all through life. So, uh, And dairy, actually, our, our family has been a dairy family for generations, and I grew up in a dairy research farm when I was young. So it's uh, it's always been of interest, and um, the uh, basically dairy looks like it's sort of in the middle of the spectrum between healthful food and unhealthy food. Uh, so if we looked at total mortality, we see that of course the the worst is processed red meat, then uh, eggs and, and unprocessed red meat dairy is sort of in the middle. Uh, but if you really want to go to low risk, then healthy plant foods would be uh, the, are associated with the lowest mortality. So whether you say dairy is good or bad, again, it's the substitution that's so critical. If you're if you're having some uh, dairy foods replacing uh, red meat, or I sort of use the example of buying a sandwich, do you want bologna or cheese or peanut butter? And uh, yeah, the, the best would be peanut butter uh, and all of them on whole grain, of course. But um, for diabetes, uh, it's, it looks pretty, dairy is pretty neutral. Uh, for weight gain, uh, it's, it, there's some suggestion in some studies that there might be a little bit less weight gain. But when we looked at it in detail, it looked like most of that was coming, for the benefit was coming from yogurt. And we adjusted for yogurt. We didn't see benefit for weight gain or type 2 diabetes. What about the, the fat content? If someone's trying to navigate this, so within the yogurt section of the grocery store mm-hmm. or, or um, even milk, there's high-fat versions mm-hmm. and low-fat versions. Mm-hmm. I think this is a really interesting thing to explore. Um, there's a lot of research on w- what are the types of saturated fats that are in dairy. Are they behaving differently to saturated fats, say, in, in meat? What would be important for people to understand here? Yeah, well... Uh, for yogurt, uh, it looks like that, uh, and other dairy foods, it looks like the, it doesn't make a great deal of difference whether it's high fat or low fat uh, for most of the outcomes we've looked at. Uh, but the worst, of course, is if it's low fat and then you put back a lot of sugar in its place. That's not going to be the healthiest choice. And of course, if you look at the grocery store shelves, a lot of these low fat dairy products are very high, uh, high in added sugar. But if we look just at dairy fat itself, it's definitely not an optimal fat. And I know there's been ideas that it's, oh, it's got some medium chain 
C15 pops up a lot. <laughs> that comes up. It turns out that's very non-specific. It's not specific to dairy. Doesn't your body make that as well? Your body can make a little bit, uh, but most. But it can also come from beef, as well, and it can come from uh, metabolized from other forms of uh, other fatty acids as well. So, unfortunately, it's not a very good indi- right. indicator. I think I read one study where vegans had the highest C15 levels. Really, which I, I hadn't thought seen was that. Super interesting. Yeah, you can get it from non-dairy, definitely from non-dairy sources, but. We did a paper specifically looking at dairy fat compared to other types of fat. And uh, clearly uh, for total cardiovascular disease, total mortality, uh, the plant oils were better than dairy fat. Uh, Fat from red meat uh, looked a little worse than dairy fat, but that may be still the things that were other things in red meat that are contributing to that. And there was one important study done by colleagues at Laval University in Canada, actually funded by the dairy industry, to look at the question of uh, was uh, dairy fat from milk uh, not, or said the other way around, is dairy fat in cheese better than dairy fat from milk? And there's been a lot of talk about that over the years. And they did a really well-designed study. As it turned out, there was a slightly less adverse effect on LDL cholesterol from dairy fat and cheese than from milk. But to their credit, they also had uh, two other arms to the study. One was a high mono plant oil and the other was a high polyunsaturated plant oil. And both of those had dramatically lower LDL cholesterol compared to either form of dairy fat. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really exactly compared what- Compared to what? Co- the, yeah. Yeah, compared to what, yes. Right. So, so, so if you're swapping out red meat for dairy, if that kind of made sense in a dietary swap, then that could be an improvement. Slight, yeah. Slight small. improvement, but then going from dairy to some sort of plant fat would be an improvement again. Right, yeah. Or if you're thinking of these just as added fats, uh, also very important because we do add quite a bit, maybe about 20% of our calories are added fats that cheese, I mean, excuse me, that butter is not going to be healthy c- compared to uh, plant oils like olive oil or canola oil or, or soybean oil. Butter tends to have even a worse effect on LDL, right, compared to cheese. My understanding was that was because of how refined it is that milk fat globule gets broken down. Is that is that why it would have a more deleterious effect? Uh, I'm not really sure there is, a, but I think those are small differences. And of right. course, you, it's hard to compare those directly because cheese has the protein and uh, that's going to uh, uh, other components and just the amount if you're using it on a total gram basis the you get more saturated fat from butter than you would from cheese so i think all of that makes sense from a substitution point of view question that i think that naturally leads to is, of course, if we look at all foods and you kind of think, okay, if you replace that for that, it's healthier. You could end up just keep doing that and you're left with one food. (laughs) So we have to have a dietary pattern. So uh, how does someone who is including dairy in their diet today think about its inclusion? So if we come back to dietary pattern, from a dose point of view, I think you, you did mention this at the beginning, but I think it's worth sort of underlining yeah. again. Um, what would the recommendation be there? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to look at this through several lenses. First of all, the 
direct effect on an individual, then the whole dietary food system, and then then sustainability as well. Because if we don't get climate change right, we don't get anything right either. And for an individual, uh, it's uh, I, I think uh, given all the pluses and minuses of dairy. Uh, zero, a range of zero to two servings of dairy could be healthy, but I think a, one serving a day is a pretty reasonable number to aim for. That's what I do, and uh, often, probably mostly in the form of yogurt, which does look like it may be a little bit better than other forms of dairy mm-hmm. foods, possibly because of the microbiome effects. Mm-hmm. Do you but, choose a, a, a full-fat dairy without added sugar or do you go for a low fat without <laughs> added sugar yeah well i think the important point is if you're just having one serving a day it doesn't matter very much whether it's low fat or full fat if you're having three servings a day then you definitely don't want that much dairy fat in your diet uh, but uh, if i look step back uh, none of that fat gets thrown away or burned it's too valuable so once that cow is milk somebody's eating that fat uh, dairy fat and Often it's the same person having it as cream or, or ice cream or something else. Uh, so there's no public health benefit of dairy fat. The only benefit is to the dairy industry because they get a double profit with low-fat products because they get this and sell the high-fat uh, food separately. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because you said ice cream and there was a study that was published must have been three or four months ago, you probably saw this, right. that showed ice cream consumption was associated with less... I'm not sure of what the outcome was. It was either a cardiometabolic outcome or mortality. Right. Uh, and a lot of people posted that to say, see, right. how can epi- epidemiology <laughs> be, be trusted if it's coming up with results like this? Yeah, uh, we've, we did, I think that either, I think that had some of our data in it, the one that just came out. It was, um, I think, a com- meta-analysis. But uh, we did see this. And uh, first of all, the amount still were, it wasn't daily consumption of ice cream. It was low and probably just due to chance the amounts consumed probably wouldn't have much effect. And I think if somebody likes ice cream, you know, have it once a week or something. Uh, enjoy it, but not not every day. Although growing up in Wisconsin, I did think we did have it every day. Uh, but um, There could be some benefits from the calcium, perhaps. That, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm just trying to convince myself ice cream's healthy. <laughs> yeah, but I would also want to look back to the climate part of it too. That and this uh, Lancet Commission that I co-chaired a, co-chaired a few years ago, we did look at how can we feed the world population a diet that's both healthy and sustainable. And we, for dairy, we said there is there is flexibility. There uh, may, maybe a range of zero. You don't need to have dairy. You can get your nutrients from other sources, or it could be up to two servings a day, just strictly for individual health. But if we actually looked at, but dairy has a big greenhouse gas emission footprint, uh, both because there's you have to feed the animal quite a bit of feed in this country. Ninety-five percent of the dairy is grain-fed dairy, and uh, there's weak conversion of food to edible, human edible food, um, but also a lot of greenhouse gas emissions from ruminants in general, uh, methane production. And if everybody consumed two servings a dairy a day, we, we couldn't stay within greenhouse gas limits even if, if we totally eliminated fossil fuel consumption. So uh, from a, both a sustainability perspective and a health perspective about one serving a day seems like a, a good target number 
And if somebody really wants to get calcium from a white liquid, uh, some of the plant milk products are good alternatives, I think, are uh, good products. Like soy milk actually gives you some healthy fats in it. Uh, seems to be maybe some benefits from uh, the phytoestrogens. Can someone be just as healthy if they decide not to consume any dairy at all and, and consume the right foods in place of that? I, I'm quite sure of that, yes. Uh, that Interestingly, uh, high dairy consumption is sort of an evolutionary aberration uh, that's relatively recent and only in parts of the world. I uh, took a, this doesn't prove anything, but it was interesting, took a little survey when, uh, at one of our department meetings in nutrition and uh, asked how much dairy people consumed as uh, uh, after they were uh, young, very young children, and more than half said zero. Uh, and they were mostly people from Asia who mm -hmm. uh, just don't consume dairy. Don't, dairy is not part of the eating culture, and that's a big chunk of the world, and also part, many parts of Africa and Latin America. And you know, these people are all college professors and doing pretty well at Harvard. So. Uh, they may end up a little bit shorter. Now, whether that's because dairy does accelerate height uh, when consumed during childhood, and whether that's good or bad. Uh, actually, I started looking at that because height is a risk factor for many cancers, and, uh, and dairy is the one food that does drive height. That's interesting. So height's a risk factor for many cancers, presumably because of just having more growth factors around? I think probably so, that milk definitely has, uh, milk consumption does increase insulin-like growth factor in our blood. There have been randomized studies that show that. And I think that's probably that acceleration of cell multiplication during childhood, which we know is a critical time, is probably the reason why milk consumption is related to uh, more cancer. Uh, that's hypothesis, but we do see the, the dots there that are not too hard to connect. Also, interestingly, when we looked at adolescent milk consumption and rate of fractures later in life, there was absolutely no benefit with high dairy consumption. There was only increased uh, fractures later in life among boys. And I think that's due to the growth acceleration and it creates long bones that are easier to break than mm. short bones. Wow. It's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah, so it's really, yeah, that's why dairy's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay, um, red meat. Shall we? Sure. Let's get into the red get meat. Get into <laughs> that debate. <laughs> why does there seem to be so much controversy around specifically unprocessed red meat? I think most people are pretty agreeable when it comes to processed meats. Not everyone, but most. But when it comes to unprocessed red meat, why is there so many different takes? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, there's clearly in Europe and the United States a very strong cultural attachment to eating red meat. This is part of uh, Northern European uh, diets. Um, and uh, secondly, uh, it, the way people have preserved it, many people are enjoy it. That's what they say. Um, and third, there's obviously been, from a health standpoint, huge push. This is a very powerful industry and a huge push from the industry, uh, partly influencing academics, paying for studies that they know they'll get the, done the way they did. They'll get the answer they want. Uh, and uh, 
a very strong influence of the meat lobby at the Department of Agriculture and also through that uh, for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, which just released a report you probably saw a couple of weeks ago saying there's no red meat consumption is safe up to 71 grams per day, which would be double the U.S. current intake about. So uh, there, there's a huge uh, push, again, with lots of vested interests behind it. Um, but some of it's also because of studies that have not done substitution analyses. And again, if you look at the evidence, it's all about what red meat is compared with. If you compare red meat with the rest of the diet, red meat's probably not too much worse than the average American diet, which is pretty terrible, as we talked about earlier on. But if you compare red meat with plant protein sources like nuts and legumes and soy, whether it's in randomized trials, uh, in that case, red meat definitely elevates uh, LDL cholesterol. Uh, and if you look at this in random in uh, long-term cohort studies, red meat is associated with higher risks of heart disease and uh, and diabetes. Uh, uh, if you compare it with healthy plant protein sources, which is really the dietary pattern that we would recommend. Yeah, one fascinating paper that I read recently was a randomized controlled trial. It was Bergeron, I think, et al. And they were looking at red meat versus white meat versus plant protein, and they saw exactly what, what you just said there. Um, substitution analyses, if someone hasn't heard that before, is that... Is that a relatively new statistical technique that, that you and your colleagues came up with? Uh, it's not totally new. Uh, interestingly, we had used it quite a while, uh, for a long time, when we were looking at macronutrients. Uh, and uh, our paper in the New England Journal, uh, Frank Hu's 1997 paper, looking at type of fat and coronary heart disease, which was really, I think, uh, turned around a lot of people's mm -hmm. thinking on this, that the type of fat is really important. And there we used uh, substitution analyses uh, that uh, compared re uh, a type of fat uh, uh, to different types of fat to carbohydrate. And it could show very clearly that, uh, that uh, saturated fat was uh, a little bit harmful compared to the same number of calories from carbohydrate. Trans fat was much worse and then the unsaturated fats were uh, good compared to carbohydrate intake, and, but it, uh, for, it was not until fairly recently that I realized why aren't we doing this for foods as well? Because that's the kind of decision that people make on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Is it going to be maybe a hamburger or some fish or some chicken, or maybe it's going to be a vegan alternative? Uh, and that that's. Uh, our analyses should really be representing the choices that people are actually making. So we've been quite routinely doing those, and that's, I think, taken off in our field, but really just within the last 10 years. I'm just imagining some very interesting conversations with you and Frank and others <laughs> probably. Like, Can you give people insight into the process, the ideation? Like, How, how do you kind of, as a researcher, come up with these new ideas and things that you want to explore? It's, uh, it is often through interactions. It's often through, uh, it, I find it very useful having our postdoctoral fellows and our students doing analyses, and I get to be involved in lots of analyses, much more than I could if I was doing everything myself. And so 
uh, being able to sort of carry through ideas from across uh, different analyses and looking at different outcomes has been very helpful. And I do remember it was actually with um, one of my uh, postdocs at that time was looking at red meat and heart disease. And we did see there was a statistically significant increase with red meat and heart disease, but it was quite weak when we were doing just the traditional analyses and, and ignoring substitutions. And it did, it just occurred to me that then, you know, why does it look weak? But well, what is statistically, what are we really doing here in this analysis? If we're not specifying the comparison, we're comparing it with everything else in the diet. And we've published lots of studies showing that rest of the diet is lots of refined starch and sugar and trans fat at that time. So what it means is that red meat's just a little bit worse than all that other not so healthy stuff in the diet. And so then it, then it became sort of obvious, well, why don't we do with foods what mm. we do with uh, macronutrients? Yeah, appreciating the importance of what someone's eating instead. Um, the other area where I've seen that, or the other thing that I, I think may lead to some conflicting results is the the contrast in exposure. Mm -hmm. So when you're running these analyses, mm -hmm. you, you, you'll see a paper published mm -hmm. and it'll say high versus low red meat, but those are kind of relative terms. And sometimes you can have a study where high is like 100 or north of that, 100 grams a day versus a lower amount. And then you might look at an Asian study where the the difference between high and low red meat intake is actually quite narrow and total red meat intake in the high groups could be at a safe level or, or a much safer level. Is that something else that deserves consideration? You know, absolutely. And you can flip that around if we're looking at soy food intake. We have very low contrast in our studies where in Asia you have a much bigger contrast. So we can't look at soy intake very well <clears throat> in our own cohorts. Um, so, yes, the amount, uh, rather than just <clears throat> relative categories like quintiles, is important to take into consideration. And um, usually we, in more recent years especially, and just we do show it across categories, which is useful to see if there's a suggestion of a plateauing effect or more or less continuous, but also publish the results showing on a continuous basis uh, amount per say 100 grams of red meat or uh, per 100 grams of fruit consumption, uh, which is really describing a linear relationship. But um, we've, we're also now taking that a second step in a, really for the first time in a paper we just submitted looking at red meat and type 2 diabetes, where we not only look at the amount that people reported, but we calibrate that intake against the amount from our sub-study where we carefully weighed and measured everything they ate for several weeks. So some foods we know, and we've known from the beginning, people do tend to overreport foods that are deemed to be healthy, like fruits and vegetables and low-fat milk, and they underreport red meat and butter and things that are not, and sweets, things that are not deemed so socially desirable. Uh, and <clears throat> that's not much of a problem in a cohort study where uh, there, there's some bias there, but if the bias isn't related to the disease outcome, then it won't affect our relative risk appreciably. And that's the main reason we do cohort studies rather than retrospective studies. We're only looking at diet when people are healthy before they get the disease because we know that disease also can distort people's reportings. But anyway, 
To take into account this bias reporting, we are now calibrating our food frequency questionnaire against the very detailed quantitative data that we have from the diet records. Uh, and uh, in general, that shows that we've, we, if we don't calibrate, we underestimate the strength of associations, but uh, just by how much will depend on exactly what we're studying. So that's taking it another step to give a more quantitative. Uh, it's not just a self-report of the amounts, but it's that calibrated against a very detailed assessment. Are there any uh, findings from that paper on red meat and type 2 diabetes that you can share, or is that top secret? <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess it's fair to say we are not refuting our previous studies okay. on red meat that we've reported, but giving a lot more detail. So what's the if there is a safe intake of unprocessed red meat, I think in, in the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet, it was in the realm of, was it zero to 28 grams a day or something like that? Yeah, that was the range. And so we came up with a target number about with half of that, about 14 grams a it's day. It's a tiny which, amount. Yeah, it, it, that's amount to about one hamburger a week, uh, which um, is very consistent with a traditional Mediterranean diet or many traditional uh, diets around the world. So. It's not that people are having big pieces of red meat on a, on a meal. They would usually be mixed in with a dish. Yeah, I think there are some people out there that will will have you believe that that's all our ancestors ate. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's certainly not the ancestors of most of the world. <laughs> right. What about if someone pushed back and said, Dr. Willett, I appreciate everything you're saying, but these people in your studies, even though they're nurses, they're eating burgers and hot dogs, and I'm getting a regenerative, grass-fed, grass-finished mm -hmm. steak. Mm -hmm. It's got to be different. Yeah. Right. That's an interesting question that we uh, get often. And uh, from a health standpoint, there's probably not very much difference there. People have made a big issue that there's more omega-3 fatty acids in the grass-fed beef, but actually the a rumen of the cattle is, is, is very effective at uh, uh, partially hydrogenating the fatty acids that are in the grass. And so most of that omega-3s in the grass gets converted to trans fat in the, in the cattle. And interesting, it looks like that trans fat's as bad as regular trans fats from partial hydrogenation industrially. Uh, um, so there's more omega-3 there, but it's and maybe double or something like that. It sounds like a big increase, but it's starting from such a tiny number uh, that it's actually still a very small amount of omega-3s. In fact, I put together a table that's on Nutrition Source on the web that shows that omega-3 amount uh, in beef, grass-fed, grain-fed, and then compared to fish, and uh, yeah, uh, compared to omega, amounts of omega-3 from fish, grass-fed beef is still very low. You know, if you were only, if you're on an island, no other sources of omega-3s, yeah, that might be important. But in the big picture, it's not uh, not enough to make any important difference. So if red meat's going to be included in a diet, it's going to be de-emphasized relative to current diets. It's actually quite a small amount, one burger a week. Yeah, or if you like to have a big 12-ounce steak, have it once a month celebratory. Like, I, I really love lobster, but I don't have it once a month either. Right. Try it while you're here, by the way. <laughs> so white meat is better than red meat. And is that, is that correct? In, in general, yes. Okay. And then fish is better again. Yeah. Uh, we, I think there's still a little bit of unsettling about how much 
uh, fish we should have. Uh, in some parts of the world, it's been badly contaminated. Right. And so there are some issues. Right. And there's a very nonlinear relationship with the amount with omega-3 fatty acid intake and heart disease risk. Uh, so uh, if once you get up to fairly modest intake of omega-3 fatty acids, adding more does very little. How does fish compare to legumes? It's interesting that, uh, it's a good question, that we have less good information on legumes than we would really like. Uh, they looked good in our studies that we published, but if you take a look, the confidence interval around legumes is actually pretty wide because most of the Western populations have greatly reduced their legume consumption. This is sort of the dried bean kind of legumes. In peas, uh, their peas are very starchy, and uh, they are a legume for sure, uh, but they actually don't look so healthy uh, in, is when we've looked at them for some Interesting. Out outcomes. So uh, they're often, they're a very inexpensive form of vegetable. So school children are likely to get as their vegetable corn or peas, and we see both of those related to more weight gain mm. in, in contrast to pretty much all other vegetables. So this is, goes back to your point about future studies trying to get more granular on specific types of foods within a food group. Absolutely right. That, right. Uh, vegetables is a very yeah. big basket. So if we're thinking about legumes, we're, we're, we're sort of mostly thinking about things like lentils and chickpeas and beans being the, the kind of go-tos. Right. Yeah. And again, if you're using those to replace red meat, in general, there will be advantages there. But I think a variety of legume, or a variety of plant protein sources is really good. Just in general, nutrition variety is a good thing. And so if someone's not consuming the fatty fish and they're not getting those omega-3s, DHA, EPA, is that something that you think people should consider supplementing with like an algae oil, DHA, EPA, or... Are you satisfied with uh, the ALA that, that comes in through nuts and seeds and other foods and that they might oil, be Right, so I mean, all are good sources, yeah. Uh, that is one of the big nutrition questions uh, globally, I think, because uh, and, and for very major reasons that we, and the Eat Lancet Commission did recommend uh, fish twice a week, which was consistent with the American Heart Association reviews and I think uh, best available evidence, but that's a big stretch to get to that number actually globally because we're overfishing already our natural resources and so almost all the increase has to be aquaculture. Yeah, and um, that's a big stretch. If you can make get, if you can get enough from plant sources, that makes it, the, the, it, makes it a lot easier to get to an optimal diet. Uh, and uh, there's debate, uh, and I think it's unsettled, whether we can rely strictly on plant sources for omega-3s. Uh, it's said that there's very poor elongation or conversion of plant sources to DHA, and, and that are, that's ultimately critical, and EPA, that, that, that those two are ultimately critical. But actually, it looks like if we're low, we do upregulate our conversion. And so we, I think it's very possible that we can get enough uh, omega-3s if we have adequate intake from plant sources. But I think in the meantime, it's a good idea to get them from uh, omega-3s from both sources to sort of hedge our bets at whether or not we can get enough just from plants. Let's finish here on dietary cholesterol. 
So this is another one where I think people are quite confused. I believe Ansel Keys early on established that dietary cholesterol does affect serum cholesterol, but nowhere near to the extent of, of saturated fat. And I think that shows up in the Keys equation. Right. Uh, and then the guidelines have kind of changed wording slightly over the years yeah. and uh, at one stage I think said to limit dietary cholesterol to a certain amount and then perhaps I believe maybe remove that or to consume as little as possible. I think the wording may have said for a while. What's what's your kind of view on dietary cholesterol as it relates to long-term human health? Yeah, a good question. And um, the it, I think it's been both overblown and then like too many things. Uh, if you say this has been overblown, then you go all the way to the other side of the swinging pendulum there that it, uh, it ignore it altogether. And the reason, main reason, justification for de-emphasizing it in the current U.S. dietary guidelines was that it seemed like intake had gone down quite a bit already and it wasn't not that cholesterol was irrelevant, but that most people were already having relatively low cholesterol intake. But um, I think it is basically still part of the picture, but a small, modest part of the picture. I think that's sort of where the evidence uh, is that it, it will have a modest effect on LDL. Um, interestingly, we this is a situation, though, I am concerned about... Um, there is a nonlinear relationship there. We were meant to have blood cholesterol and LDL cholesterol that plays a physiologic role. And driving it down too much, uh, it does seem, uh, the evidence is quite clear that that will increase hemorrhagic stroke risk. Uh, this has been studied a lot in Japan because uh, until fairly recently, uh, hemorrhagic stroke was the number one cause of death in Japan. Uh, a lot of it related to hypertension, but uh, uh, also uh, to very low blood cholesterol levels. And um, there's now evidence that uh, statins will do that if you drive uh, cholesterol down too low, and also Mendelian randomization showing that the genotype that is consistent uh, with uh, the gene that's regulated by statins, that's also associated with higher hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, so that going to super low saturated fat, which usually also means high carbohydrate intake uh, in most diets, that picture of, um, that w w described Japan and northern China and other parts of the world that have very have had very high right. hemorrhagic stroke. So they have a reduction in the ischemic stroke and ischemic heart disease, but an increase in hemorrhagic. Right. Yeah, so it looks like there is a uh, just because it's good to move in one direction, which is toward lower LDL, less saturated fat, lower lower cholesterol in a diet. Doesn't mean that going to zero is is optimal. That is a point I see people make. They they might say in this conversation, if they were trading seats with me, they might say, Doctor Willett, I can make all these swaps and and eat more polyunsaturated fats, lower my saturated fat, and my LDL, ApoB, it'll, it will come down. But am I going to live longer, or <laughs> will I just die of something else? Right. Well, that's a good question. And um, actually, I published a paper in Science quite some years ago. <laughs> crude, but uh, looking at the 
uh, traditional Japanese diet, American diet, and traditional Mediterranean diet. And actually, the Mediterranean diet is really where you'd like to be because it looked like Japan and U.S. were trading off heart disease for hemorrhagic stroke. But uh, Greece, it was, was uh, really, uh, it looked like in the sweet spot there, which I, I think all the evidence is, that's come in since that time has really supported that, that the Mediterranean diet pattern, which is mostly, it, it, while there's still some uncertainty about just exactly where we should be, it's somewhere close to that sweet spot where it's um, mostly plant-based, not 100% plant-based, and they have had low rates of cardiovascular disease and also with stroke still being low, to make your point. And also, in terms of cancers, it looked like uh, Japan definitely had high, very low rates of breast cancer and colorectal cancer. Uh, and as Greece was not quite that low, but even as Greece is sort of modernized, their rates of colorectal cancer are still mm. quite low. And breast cancer, again, uh, not super low, but not... Right. What do you think that sweet spot is for LDL cholesterol? Is that something that you've thought yeah. about? And would that potentially be different depending on someone's health circumstances? So someone, for example, who is listening that's, let's say, a teenager or in their 20s who has no history of cardiovascular disease versus, say, someone who's already had an ischemic heart event. You're right. It, it really does depend on the setting there. If somebody already has an ischemic heart event, has atherosclerosis, that really greatly up, uh, increases your chance of dying of atherosclerotic disease. So you really do want to push LDL cholesterol down lower and, and obviously should be under physician care for that. Uh, but I think the idea of driving uh, you know, a middle-aged person who's healthy, no evidence, or high risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, driving that LDL down as low as possible is not necessarily a good thing to do. Exactly what the right number is, I think it's still a little bit fuzzy, but for um, we now have drugs that can really drive LDL down very low, and just because you can drive it low doesn't mean we should. everybody should go there. Okay, let's, let's finish with the kind of big takeaways from what we've just spoken about and, and your research with these three cohorts and all of the other research that you've kind of drawn on to, to form your current sort of, I guess, thesis, nutrition thesis around what a healthy diet is. So um, we've explored the importance of the quality of the macronutrients diet that's favoring these unsaturated fats, particularly polyunsaturated fats, um, a diet that is favoring unrefined sources of carbohydrates. We didn't talk a lot about that, but that's you know whole grains, for example. Even legumes contain unrefined carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. A diet from a protein perspective that is leaning a bit more into these nuts and seeds and legumes and fatty fish if people eat seafood. If someone's not eating seafood, then maybe consider a DHA EPA supplement mm -hmm. to kind of hedge their bets there. Mm -hmm. The jury's a bit out on that. Um, Dairy can be featured, but modestly, cheese and yogurt, probably the best bet. And at that modest level, probably don't need to worry too much about the fat content, but look for something that doesn't have a whole lot of added sugars. Um, if someone's not consuming dairy, I'm assuming, then they should probably consider where they're getting their calcium from, for example, and make sure that they're getting an adequate amount there. So I think that's a really crystal clear summary for people. It, it might not be as palatable as saying, here's the exact diet to do, but it's a theme. Yeah. 
people listening from different cultures mm-hmm. or prefer- have different preferences can go and sort of yeah, formulate what that dietary pattern looks like. I think we're, we're sort of all on the same page there. The hardest thing is when someone finishes this episode to go away and implement it. And so if we think about what the typical person's diet is, perhaps that may represent some of the diets of the listeners. What are the, the whether it's one or two or three, the biggest swaps that would change their health the most that we could leave them with from a food point of view? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was a perfect description. I couldn't do it any better. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, the, how do we put this into practical terms, uh, uh, meals on the table uh, is critical and important. In fact, that's what we're doing now with our update of the Eat Lancet uh, report is I'm back making pictures. I'm collecting them from students around the world of what a healthy diet that, that, that makes uh, fits that description uh, that you just made. Uh, what that really looks like. And also, it's got to be attractive. It has to be something that's aspirational. And also, by the way, helps control climate change at the same time as it makes us healthy. Uh, so the, the good news is that you can put that dietary pattern together in thousands of different ways that are delicious, enjoyable. And uh, I think a good starting point is for most cultures to look at the traditional culture to begin with, which obviously pass the test of time, at least we're getting to reproductive age, if nothing more. And uh, and uh, pulling out of that, uh, uh, sometimes making very little changes. It happens that it fit the Mediterranean diet pattern quite specifically or very, very well, but it also fits diets from parts of Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America. Sometimes there are tweaks that need to be made, such as many of the Asian diets are way too high in sodium. Uh, and we now understand that that needs to change. There's a couple things, though. Uh, I, would, I would first look at beverages uh, that we didn't talk about very much. But we, but if there's one bad food in our diet that's commonly consumed, it's sugar-sweetened beverages. And just uh, minimizing those uh, to not more than occasional. Are we swapping those for water? Or are we swapping those for the uh, sort of artificially sweetened version yeah definitely the aim is to go for water or water with a bit of juice in it or tea or coffee there's lots of alternatives there but not to but we don't need the artificial sweeteners that said for some people they can be like a nicotine patch for people who are really addicted to sugar sweetened beverages so i wouldn't they're going to be better than the sugar sweetened beverages we have lots they may have their role right Uh, but like a nicotine patch basically and then uh, the other part, the big, uh, well, two other ones just to mention, uh, replacing refined grains with whole grains. And that's usually a pretty easy swap. And after a while, most of the, most people, I think, realize that the, the whole grains of brown rice and other alternatives actually have more flavor and more oh, interesting. Quinoa. Yeah, good options. And then uh, finally, think think about nuts is an alternative protein source that most people think of them just as a snack. But I have them for breakfast, uh, my oatmeal, I have them for lunch uh, often on my salad. Do you have a favorite nut? Uh, Probably more almonds, but the good thing is, again, there's a lot of variety. I love almonds, macadamias, walnuts. Right, yeah, they're they're all good. And hazelnuts too, I like. and you can use them as a protein source in a main dish as well, too. There's lots of recipes that show that. So that, that's a 
that's an easy kind of swap. So think of these swaps. Great. Well, Dr. Will, this has been most enlightening. Thank you so much. We uh, all appreciate your dedication to science and all of your work in helping us better understand how to enjoy a, a healthy diet that's going to help us live as many years um, without chronic disease as possible. So appreciate you, appreciate your work, and hopefully sometime in the future we can sit down and continue this conversation. Well, thank you, and especially for all your efforts to uh, make this information available to everybody. It's a pleasure. Likewise. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.